Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this show, we aim to interview leaders from a range of performance disciplines within the tactical performance space to help you improve performance at the individual and organizational level. Now, guys, this will be our final episode for 2021, and we're going to take an extended break over Christmas and the New Year period. We'll be back in 2022 with some great guests, once again, providing great insights and information into the tactical space. So to round us off with our final episode of 2021, I'm going to sit down and chat to Dr. Brian Schilling. Brian is a professor at University of Las Vegas in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition Sciences. He teaches courses in research methods, scientific writing, communication, and military slash first responder human performance. He earned his master's degree in exercise science from Appalachian State University and his PhD in biology from the University of Memphis. He is the current editor-in-chief of the NSA's Tactical Strength and Conditioning Report. His research focuses on the physical demands amongst military, law enforcement, fire and rescue personnel, and also how to best train to meet these demands. In addition to this, he also has an extensive publication record with over 130 papers in the field of human performance. In this episode, me and Brian chat about his research background and how he got involved in tactical research, the impact of load carriage on respiratory function, and the impact of blood donation on performance. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Brian. Hey, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. No problem, Brian. I mean, you're a guy I've been looking forward to having a good chat to. I actually first came across some of you and your work on YouTube, uh, funnily enough, just your presentation for the NSA of how coaches can actually implement and use research more effectively to guide their program and their scope of practice as well. So I know you've started to move a bit more into uh, tactical and defense side of things. So I thought you'd be a great guy to come on, just really dive in depth into some more of the research side of stuff. Appreciate that. Yeah, I think I can talk talk about it all because uh, you know my research is really based in that the idea of uh, giving coaches stuff that they can really use. That's cool, man. That's cool. So I mean, obviously, me and you, Brian, have had chance to just chat a little bit off air, get to know each other, and some of the work you're involved in. For anyone who hasn't come across you, Brian, and the work you're currently doing, can you just tell us, you know, where you start out in your career and where you're currently at? Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. I think when I listen to the podcast, a lot of people have the same type of uh, beginning. So I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. And when I mean nowhere, like a town of like 1,500 people, one high school of 240 people. But uh, this high school was all about playing American football. And that was my deal. Um, so I, you know, that was what I wanted to do. I knew that the, the teams were successful. So even like in middle school, I'm getting ready for my high school football career, right? So uh, the problem was, is I'm five foot nothing, 100 nothing. And uh, so I got into strength training right away. Like, how can I get bigger to, to play football? Because I knew I wasn't going to make it otherwise. And so, you know, unfortunately, that really usually means picking up muscle and fiction and trying to see what bodybuilders are doing. Um, but I was pretty fortunate to have a decent football career and uh, decided I wanted to go to college. So then I had to figure out what for. So in the, in the, in the state university system in Wisconsin, unless you're going to the University of Wisconsin, there's no scholarship. They're all division three. So I've had a chance to go play at a, a, a tiny school, Winona State in southeastern Minnesota. That was Division II. Uh, I say play, but it's more like practice. I practiced college football. I didn't play that much. Um, but it was great because uh, they had a great exercise science program. And I didn't really know what, exactly what career I was looking for, but I had great professors. Um, Don Anderson, who's still active today, and Ken Turley were my, my undergraduate professors. Um, you know, Don's active in the NSCA, which is pretty cool. Uh, but I remember Ken Turley said something to me one day. He's like, man, you need to go to grad school. And I couldn't, you know, now looking back, I don't know what the context was. It could have been, he just wanted me to get the hell out of his office or something like that. And he just wanted to get rid of me. But, um, so I thought, well, okay, how do I do that? So he said, well, 
the journals. So I looked at journals and uh, I paid them through JSCR. There's this guy doing some stuff I want to do. His name is Mike Stone. He's at Appalachian State in uh, North Carolina. Never heard of the place, honestly. Um, packed up all my stuff. My, my dad uh, helped me drive down there in January. And then I walked in the door. Here we go. And uh, that was huge for me because Mike was just such a great mentor. Um, really, really helped me out. Uh, but, but before I did that, I, I did have a chance to, to learn a little bit um, from the Olympic Training Center experience. I had to do an internship for my undergraduate. And so I just cast a wide net. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I just applied everywhere. And somehow I got stupid lucky and got this internship at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, California. Uh, you know, looking back now, they, they surely wanted somebody with a master's degree or in, in a master's degree program because that was way over my head. Uh, but Mike Shannon was uh, was good to me. Um, I was I was you know drinking from a fire hose, but I learned a lot. I got exposed to a lot of different sports that I had never worked with. Right, small town Wisconsin, you don't get crew, you don't get um, you don't get uh, a canoe kayak. Um, you know there were some track and field athletes out there, race walking. All my roommates were race walkers, which is kind of interesting because I don't look like a race walker. Um, so that was huge. Uh, just getting the Olympic training center experience, and then moving on to Appalachian. Uh, you know, Mike and Meg Stone taught me a, a ton. I met my beautiful wife there, who's a, a, a sports dietitian, which is, has been awesome. Um, so we, you know, our dinner table conversations are kind of unique, I think. But uh, so I got another chance to do a, a, an internship uh, finishing my master's degree. So I went to back to the OTC, but I went this time to Colorado Springs. And again, exposed to a bunch of different sports I really never uh, was exposed to, like Greco and, uh, and Judo. And, uh, and I, I got a getting into competitive weightlifting at the time. So I got to train with the weightlifters and learn more about weightlifting then. Uh, so it was, it was just a, a truly great experience. I really treasure that time uh, as, a, as a paid intern with them. So then I kind of had to figure out what I was going to do. So I was at this crossroads where I, I wasn't a great coach, um, but that's kind of what I was doing, but I, I like, really like the science end of it. And so am I going to be a coach? Or am I going to be in, go into academics and go get a PhD? And Really struggled trying to find a PhD program uh, that was that I really wanted to do. Um, I applied to be the head strength coach at the Olympic Training Center in um, Lake Placid, and I didn't get the job. So I think that was a, a way of God telling me to figure out something else. Uh, but I did uh, stumble on a, a ability to get a PhD with uh, Andy Fry at the University of Memphis. It was a little bit of a strange road, and that my PhD is in biology, but I got to work with Andy in the exercise science lab, and then um, I fell into a stupid situation where during my last year they had an unfilled faculty position and I taught a bunch as part of my uh, assistantship and the next year the job was open and I applied for it uh, and I stayed I got the job and I stayed and so I think a lot of people think I stayed out of inertia I just didn't want to leave but honestly I tried I tried to leave I tried all over the place to get a different job uh, and nothing really came through this was the best job it's um I got to do a two and two teaching load, which was pretty low considering I was, wasn't self-funded at the time. Um, and I got to do the research I wanted to do. Um, so I stayed, you know, so uh, all told between my PhD and faculty, I was there for 16 years. And uh, my wife and I really uh, enjoyed it there. Um, I, don't I don't think we really miss Memphis that much. Uh, we miss our people. Uh, you've heard that thing where you, you don't miss the circus, but you miss the clowns. So that's kind of us. But um, yeah, it worked out really well. And then through that time at Memphis, I was able to do work in strength training. I, I did a little bit with some neurologists working with people with Parkinson's disease. But towards the end of that, I, I, uh, I met a guy that was actually a huge Navy base just outside of, uh, of Memphis in Millington, which uh, nobody knows because it's not very close to any uh, saltwater. Uh, but they were looking at, uh, they just had some questions about the Navy uh, physical readiness test and what they could do differently. So 
um, with a little bit of funding from the NSDA, we were able to do a study with them and kind of look at some new modalities that they might use for the Navy fitness test. And then at the time, I ended up getting a, a, a graduate student who was in the National Guard. I had an, an undergraduate who was transitioning into our master's program who was a vet. And then I had another graduate student who's, uh, whose boyfriend was on the SWAT team. So we started just asking these questions around this area of tactical research. And then uh, and I kind of went in um, both feet. I mean, that's an awesome career path, uh, Brian. Just, as you say, a very good mixture of the academic side and that applied side as well, going through the you know, um, Olympic training centers out there as well in Colorado Springs, as well as um, Chula Vista. I'm, I'm jealous, dude, of you know, your uh, post-grad opportunities there, one with Dr. Mike Stone and then under Dr. Andy Fry as well. I haven't had the pleasure to see uh, Andy ever present live, but I've seen Mike present live and that was mind blowing just to sit and listen to him. I mean, just a different level of intelligence, that guy and how he breaks things down. What was that like being with him, you know, day in, day out in the classroom and having him as your mentor? It was fantastic. I mean, you, they just really took me under their wing. I was pretty far from home. I was, I was probably trying like a little baby. It was like the dead of winter in January. My dad just drove 17 hours. He gets in the car to leave. I'm in this basement apartment. I'm thinking, man, this is it. Actually, I remember it was, uh, you know, I started in January. So it was like, you know, Super Bowl season. So my Packers are in the Super Bowl. I'm sitting in this apartment by myself and my Packers lose the Super Bowl to the Denver Broncos. I'm like, man, is this the bottom? Have I really have I hit bottom? <laughs> But, uh, you know, Mike and Meg were just fantastic. And I didn't really know much about lifting, uh, Olympic lifting before I, I went to Appalachia. And I remember he basically said, look, you just got to come down in the weight room with us to the track and field and, uh, and just get under a bar so you understand things a little bit. And I think I probably in the matter of a month went from, oh, I don't know about this weightlifting thing to, oh, my gosh, I want to be a competitive lifter. I want to I see what I can do. Um, I want to qualify for nationals. You know, I was lifting about 85 kilos at the time. It took me a long time to finally qualify for nationals. And I don't think I probably could um anymore but uh it was it was a great experience i really enjoyed learning from them um and it's just a it was just a great environment um you know and there were other good professors there as well and being able to work with athletics they had a good relationship with athletics at the time as a matter of fact i followed them all the way to scotland for a period of time i thought i was going to get my phd at edinburgh when they were over there and uh when uh meg was working for um scottish track and field so yeah um i mean i sure miss those times uh, I remember, you know, now now that I'm in the tactical world, I remember that him telling me that he went to Guantanamo Bay a long, long time ago to work, do some stuff with the Marine Corps because uh, he always had a beard. I remember he said he had to shave it, so he just had his mustache, and I think that's the only time I've ever seen him without a beard. Uh, I know it's uh, pretty pronounced that beard and that mustache. It's quite iconic. Him is lifting uh, belt and shoes as well. Absolutely. Gotta love it, man. Gotta love it. But you say there as well, it's almost the perfect storm making that transition through from sport into the tactical realm with regards to the Navy, with regard uh, the physical fitness test, and then obviously some of the guys who were within the the um, you say the SWAT team there as well, members. So yep. what was that like then? Not only getting the opportunity to get approached by those guys, but getting your mind around like the work that's involved and getting up to speed with you know some of the demands of a tactical environment going from more of a sport and research background. Yeah, I, I just I was very very fortunate to have good relationships. You know, uh, John Carlock, who was uh, a, a student with me at Appalachian. Um, you know, he went on to work for the Olympic Training Centers, and just a, he's a fantastic coach. But now he's working for Army Special Forces, right? So, either, there was a guy on the phone I could pick up and ask if I had you know stupid questions. I was too embarrassed to ask anybody else, you know. And and I just tried to you know, tried to um, keep my mouth shut as much as possible, listen and learn, and then 
Um, if there was something that I could apply from the sport world, I, I tried to apply it. Uh, you know, Mark Stevenson's another guy where, um, you know, I'd known him probably, you know, I've, I've now it, all told, I think I wouldn't known the guy for 22 years or something like that, but you're coming from a sport background, but he was, you know, he was in the Marine Corps, right? So then he went into the tactical world. So there's another guy I could call up and, um, and he took me and showed me some things that uh, most people don't get to see. Um, and, um, you know, not, not, not anything, you know, top secret or anything like that, but it's just, just unique experiences that I never would have had if I hadn't had those connections. So uh, I can't I just appreciate all the relationships I've got, you know, and the guy and guys I know now that are with, you know, called Paul Goldberg. And um, so there's a, there's a, there's a laundry list of people. I, I feel, I feel bad starting to name names because I could probably talk for two hours about just the people who have uh, been so helpful. And I mean, some of those guys you just rattled off there of, you know, real big pioneers within the tactical uh, realm as well of helping to push that forward and their work within the special operations has been huge as well i've seen yeah it's, it's crazy right if you look at john's coaching pedigree coming from the olympic training center and and all the stuff that he's worked with and you know paul goldberg was with the avalanche uh you know ray bear is another one you know he was he was in professional hockey before he was on the tactical side um so there's there's just a there's a lot of really really good coaches out there man i'm humbled to uh to be able to work with them definitely man. definitely i mean it's a great great uh network of guys you can pick uh, their brains for and ideas around that as well um obviously having those inroads with those guys is great how are you continuing to build those relationships brian with regards to you know working with the military now well yeah I, I, now it's just a, a matter of uh of you know again staying in my lane trying to figure out what questions they have um, I think I've got, got a little bit of a benefit of not being too much of a specialist. Uh, I always like the quote that said a specialist knows more and more about less and less because they know nearly everything about almost nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm able to kind of to maybe bridge the gap between different areas uh, uh, of work. Um, if there's any drawback, I think, is that uh, there's, there are too many specialists. So, so there's people that know their thing, like I know, you know sleep or I know, you know whatever it may be. But then trying to plug that into this real odd model of what goes on in the military and then you know you can't just say military or you can't just say fire right you or or law enforcement you've got especially in the military side it's so big you've got small units and you've got big units and you've got you know integration things and you've got public health questions really right because of all the people so it's a it's a it's a it's a fun place to be it's dynamic um <laughs> it can lead to some frustration i guess uh but it, it's, it's a good place to be so yeah i'm just uh i'm you know i'm, I'm trying to ask good questions um, uh, and ask them what their questions are. Like, how can I, how can I help them? How can I help the human performance programs? What information do you need to, to make that program more robust? Um, uh, uh, are there questions like that? Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's been a good place to be. Like Jay said, when he was on your podcast, like there's some of the stuff that's just my curiosity, like, Hey, I wonder if, uh, but you gotta be careful with that stuff, right? Cause, uh, time is, time is, is a, is a huge resource. And, uh, yeah, on the academic side, we can we can ponder those those silly questions sometimes, but uh, these guys don't have time for that, right? So, um, yeah. uh, but they, you can also use you can also use models, right? I mean, uh, what was that that quote that uh, you know all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. You know, you yeah. can use young healthy men as a model and still kind of ask them questions that are at least applicable. Well, I get that question from uh, potential students a lot, like, well, who you know, what unit am I going to work with? What am I going to do? I'm like, well, we're going to ask tactical related questions mm -hmm. um uh we're not going to be method driven right i'm not going to say well hi i have this you know i have this force plate what are we going to what question can we ask with a force plate we're going to ask questions that need to be answered in 
we'll figure out if we can answer them or if we can collaborate people and how to answer them. So uh, I think that that's really the, the key right now to, with what I'm doing is um, keeping a broad enough outlook. Um, most of the questions we're asking are around load carriage, but uh, uh, somewhat unique questions around load carriage, I guess, not necessarily just your rucking stuff. Again, not that that's not important, but we're looking at more um, uh, uh, close quarters type stuff, the types of movements that you would have to do. Uh, maybe that's not just uh, hitting the road with, with a big pack. That's interesting. And for most of the questions that are coming back and being asked of you, Brian, to help out with, is it very much on that performance scale of the, the house or is it uh, also, like you say, some of the public health and longevity side of things for operators as well? Well, I, I think, you know, public, the public health questions are probably like for the bigger, bigger, you know, big Navy, big army, right? In the, in the, in the, in the small unit stuff, it's really, longevity is huge, right? And I'm not a young person anymore, so I can appreciate that a little bit. Um, I've actually, I, I got a, a, a friend who's a, been a SEAL forever. And, you know, look at this guy and look at how beat up he is, but how effective he still is, right? So we have this, this kind of weird dichotomy where the body breaks down, he's got tactical knowledge, like the stuff that's going on between his ears can probably never be replicated. Mm -hmm. um, even the biggest stud coming out of buds or whatever, he's, he's not going to have that tactical knowledge. So the longevity piece is extremely important. Um, and obviously it's better, it's better for their, their well-being, right? I mean, he's, you know, we're, we're both fathers, right? So I, you know, I see him with his daughter and I want him to be able to do things with his daughter when he's done, right? Especially after the service he's given uh, this country. So the longevity question is always going to be big. Uh, but the other questions are really around, um, you know, I try to think about things that are really going to help the human performance team, right? So things like load management and things and things like that are important. Or, um, you know, the, there's been a lot of work looking at, uh, well, we'll have a couple of papers coming out here pretty soon looking at the respiratory function with body armor, how you wear your body armor, um, the fit of the body armor, the weight of the body armor. We get caught up in weight a lot, which is important, right? It's a huge variable, but fit matters too. Um, I've got some plate carriers that are terrible. Like they're like, unbelievably uncomfortable. I got some that are pretty comfortable, but they're a little bulky. Um, so uh, there's all kinds of things, you know, the, 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 the fit of the load, the location of the load, um, all, all those types of things that we're, is what we're looking at with load carriage. With regards, <laughs> to, um, with regards to your load carriage stuff you're looking at, Brian, at the moment, obviously you're saying like the overall fit, the ability to adjust and stuff like that as well. With population group, are you just looking primarily at uh, male subjects at the moment or since, you know, all roles are open up to women within the military now as well? Are you looking at comparisons with women wearing that load carriage as well? We haven't gone down that road yet. Um, okay. so mo most of what we've done so far has been with men. Um, and, and that that really gets into that fit question, right? I mean, I, I don't have, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty short guy. So I don't have much, I don't have much of a, like a, a distance between the top of my hips and my rib cage. So like when I sit down, I'm wearing a kit, like and you can see it kind of push up like that. So you can only imagine with the diversity and body shape that we see. Um, regardless of gender, right? There's just short people, tall people, you know, wide people, narrow people, et cetera, et cetera. And then you throw women in the mix. It's a, it's a much more uh, uh, interesting question. Um, I'd like to see us go down that road. Um, it's expensive, right, to do this type of work because you have to have all these different types of kits and all these different types of sizes. So, uh, you know, I know that the, the military themselves, they're doing a lot of that work internally to, to find out those really important questions. So I think there's going to be a lot of stuff coming along, um, you know, I said that the, the magnitude question is the one that we ask a lot, but there's 
there's a lot going into that, right? I mean, even if we find a light, flexible body armor, which everybody's hot about right now, that doesn't mean that people are going to carry less. They're going to carry more ammo or carry more water or whatever it may be, right? Yeah. Because it's kind of indoctrinated right now. I mean, there's there's all this technology around polymer cased ammo, which is fascinating, except that uh, it's, 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 it's not just as simple as lighter ammo, right? Because there's other things that weigh, you know, and some of the, some of the work we're doing is with them. Um, with far forward blood and, you know, can you carry blood products into the, into the field? And, um, you know, what if, what if you had to do a, a field transfusion, how many people are available, those types of things. So there's all kinds of really interrelated nebulous questions around load carriage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's an interesting point you mentioned there. I know you sent on the paper to me as well regarding um, your publication on that with the blood transfusions and stuff out in the field so i'd like to touch on that a little bit more as well brian just regarding you know what have you found so far with regards to you know the ability to carry that out and also if you're in the field and you have to do a blood transfusion what impact is that having on performance for recipient but also um you know those guys who are donating out there yeah, that, I mean, that's the question we're really trying to answer. There's some good work out there. A lot of it, a lot of it's been done in the Scandinavian countries looking at uh, the ability of a person to perform after blood donation, right? So they don't become another casualty. Uh, and uh, it, it's interesting. There's, there, the methods are difficult to answer these questions. It's hard to blind somebody to a blood draw. And uh, they've actually seen a couple of cases where, uh, where uh, in these small elite units, they perform better after a blood draw. And I think that if you, if you understand the mentality, they're like, oh, I have blood drawn. I'm going to show you that I can still perform and they actually do a little bit better. So um, so that's that's one of the things we're really running into is, is, is figuring out how to do some sham blood draws, which uh, we're, we're going to attempt. The other thing is really just looking at the, the magnitude of what you would have to do. So if you if you um, say you, you, you landed on the Y, you, you, you hump into the X, something bad happens on the X, you have to transfuse. What do you, you still have to walk back out of there? Right. Or. So, you know, this idea of uh, uh, you're short a unit of blood and you got to you got to walk it out or you got to get out of there somehow or you might have to, you know, you know, uh, lift or carry somebody out of there, too. So there's all kinds of uh, exertion questions around that. Um, could some people give more than others? You know, um, you know, I I tend to give double red cells when I go give. So I, I am I'm I'm wiped out for a little period of time after that, even with the blood volume up, missing those red cells sucks. Mm -hmm. I'll get on the, you know, I'll usually get on the row or something next day and watch my heart rate go through the roof. <laughs> I'm not really doing that much just to try to, to get the, the red cells that I have left circulating around. So uh, there's, there's still some really interesting questions I think we can answer that, that haven't been there. And hopefully, again, that'll provide some real usable data for the, for the people in the field. Um, maybe they'll have some better understanding of, you know, what they can do for threshold blood, the walking blood bank concept, all those types of things. That's cool. And what sort of metrics are you guys looking at? Are you looking very much on the, the speed and power side of the house with regards to, you know, that uh, well, performance effect after blood drawn? Are you looking more endurance side of things as well? So if guys do have to get out from the X back to the Y there? We're trying to do a little bit of everything. That's kind of what's unique, I think, what we, what we plan. So we're, yeah, we're going to do some strength power stuff. They're going to do some live fire exercises, which are obviously critical. Uh, for the for the units that we're discussing, um, and then they're gonna they're gonna top it off with a road march. Uh, so we'll have heart rate measures, we'll have temperature measures, we'll have some other good measures of uh, of physiology as well as performance. So hopefully we can we can start to um, you know answer some questions and get a get a better understanding of the the ins and outs of it. That's cool, dude. 
And then with the, obviously the research around the, the impact of blood drawn and the field and uh, your respiratory study as well with regards to load carriage, when, when are you guys looking to wrap those projects up and start looking to get published out, guys? Yeah, well, COVID's definitely um, uh, been challenging, especially with the with the scheduling for the for data collection for the blood study. So um, I'm hoping that um, you know by mid 2022 we'll be we'll have a good handle on that study. The respiratory papers we're just really waiting to get them out right now. We're just uh, putting the final touches on them. Uh, the, the, uh, our students really had a, a tough time with COVID. When when that hit and people got shut down, we lost access to subjects. You know, we just couldn't get in the lab to get things done. Um, so from a from a doctoral student perspective, it was just it was brutal. I can't even imagine what those guys were going through. So yeah, we've had some delays, but I think I think we're I think we're you know we're over the mountain now. I think um, we're gonna we're gonna have some time. I, I was telling you beforehand, I've had a I've had a you know a trouble recruiting. Um, COVID made it really hard to recruit students, and then I, I recruited a, a master student. And he got deployed, so I won't see him for the next 10 months or so um, but i'm looking forward to like i said knocking some stuff out in early 2022 maybe those tables will start rolling out here um and then uh and then kicking it back off again next fall with the new academic year hopefully we'll be will be less lockdowns and less restrictions and we can we can get moving with some new data that's awesome dude that's awesome and one of the things i wanted to chat to you a little bit as well brian is obviously i said you know you first cropped up on my radar with regards to just highlighting to strength coaches the importance of research and how that can be used to really push forward your evidence-based practice and you know implement how you're conducting your work as well. How are you starting to roll that out into you know within the military and the tactical populations you you guys are embedded with? Yeah, so you know it's funny. I I mean I I taught research methods for a long time and and then uh, when I was at Memphis I was asked to uh, edit a book. Um, that was on evidence-based practice. It was uh, coming out basically because athletic training was in the United States was really pushing that as one of their one of their main pillars that you have to be able to understand the evidence. And during that process, I actually switched over from being an editor to a co-author of that book to try to to broaden out the the readership of it um, into exercise sciences. And so I really started thinking about things, especially because I had that experience as a coach and and I was kind of the guy that always said, you know, the research is the way to go. You got to get into the evidence, got to get into the evidence. And probably what made me not as good of a coach. I didn't have, I didn't have the coaching skills, I had the knowledge, you know, but not the ability to apply it to, to the individual. So, so it's funny now, right? So when I, when I get up on the podium or I'm, and I'm talking to a group of people and I'm going to talk about evidence-based practice, the crowd probably thinks I'm going to say, you practitioners need to do this better. You need to do this, you need to do this. And honestly, what I tell them is the science is pretty bad right now. The state of science is bad. Um, there's too many journals publishing too much bad stuff. Um, there's, uh, and we, we as academics are probably not doing as good a job training the next generation of researchers. So what you've got is this really downward spiral of poor scientists reviewing poor science and the poor science gets published and, and, it, and it goes down from there. So I'm trying to trying to hold myself up to the standard of making sure that the evidence that we are providing is is given in a manner that can that can be used by the practitioner and it's it's at the right level right because everybody wants to make more of their findings right oh we, I, we found this we found that it's like well did you, did you really find that or do you think you did right so i talk a lot about the continuum of certainty you know i mean it's you know if for instance, if if, uh, if uh, one of these coaches like you know, paul goldberg right he comes to me and says brian i really think this Paul's been a strength coach forever, and he's worked at every different level. 
it, I'd be an idiot, no matter how much data I have in my in my brain to say, oh, that's wrong because of X, Y, and Z. Because now we might talk it out and we might we might disagree about it. But this idea that the opinions don't matter, uh, they matter, right? That, that's it's a level of evidence. Um, so really working on a continuum of certainty. How certain are you of those findings? And unfortunately, what it it's, uh, it, it infiltrates all levels of research, um, but a lot of the dissemination. So. I teach, a, I teach a course on scientific writing and communication, and we really harp on that. But even when I teach research methods, we talk about the idea that um, you, know, you don't do research and then write it up, or you don't do research and then you, 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 you present it. That is the research, right? If it doesn't, it's not disseminated, it doesn't exist. And the quality of the dissemination is a huge part of the quality of the whole project. Um, so, you know, we, we, you know and I, we, you've had guy, uh, men and women on your podcast that really talk about the idea of communication and coaching and how important it is. It's important in science too, and unfortunately, we don't train very well. A lot of what people learn for communication is by imitation. And if you're imitating somebody who's not very good, you don't know it, but you but you're doing it right, and that gets propagated. So, trying to talk about some principles of communication uh, uh, and and making sure that you're consistent with your communication and you are um, realistic in your your certainty of your findings, I think is is a huge huge thing. That's a that's a really interesting point there as well, Brian. It's just like the the, the landscape of the researchers say it changing over time with regards to what's been published there and who's conducting it and yeah and how that's changing. I, I find it interesting as well. They like say relying on guys in the field as well who are a trusted source of information, um, like that with regards to like Paul and stuff like that, and who are conducting things. So I do tend to find from my own my own research into it, it's just like. A lot of stuff it's almost like a bell curve effect of like some people are like completely ignore research evidence and just crack on and it's, it's a bit like the wild west what they're doing and then you get the other ones who are just so hamstrung by it like oh well if it's not research based i'm not doing it um and it's just like i've always said to a lot of coaches like look use it to guide you but don't be strung up by it completely so I, my, my big one was always louis simmons stuff on the use of accommodating resistance and it's just like look it took us what 10 years to play catch up to show that it did work with some of the band and chain tension but his guys were already getting strong with it so it's just like that happy mix so once again being somewhere in the middle of that i think it's huge um but one thing i do quite like you say there as well is just you know the importance of training the next generation of researchers making sure they're of a, a really high standard to conduct the research so that therefore whatever questions we do get answered it has a great carryover and it's not just nonsense being published out there. Um, I know from Chanty, dude, you've got a really solid, solid postgrad program going at UNLV with regards to the tactical space as well, with numerous studies going on. Could you just tell us a little bit more about, you know, the program overall at UNLV, how that's grown and where you see it going as well? Yeah, I came to UNLV uh, a little over five years ago now and, uh, it, uh, it's been it's been a great experience. One of the reasons that I, we, we chose to come out here is the, the fact that I had access to PhD students where I didn't have at Memphis at the time. So um, it was big. It was a big move for us. You know, my in-laws are in North Carolina, so I didn't think we were going to keep going west. But uh, Vegas has been fantastic. First of all, the sun shines 300 days of the year. So I, I know I sound like the Chamber of Commerce, but uh, Vegas is pretty awesome. And there's all kinds of outdoor activities, which is just great for for my well-being, and and uh, and uh, so I can get out to the range, and I can and I can uh, uh, spend some time toying around with those types of things, and you know it's good good for my brain. But UNLV has been good. You know, we've uh, 
since I moved here, um, they were already building the USC Performance Institute, and then they hired a, an unbelievably top-notch staff, right? So, oh, you know, then my phone rings and Duncan French is talking to me about moving to Las Vegas. I'm like, this is almost too good to be true. Yeah. Um, and so just having, having the UFC here leading the charge in sports science has been phenomenal. And then just like that, we have the NHL, and now we have the NFL. Uh, we have a, a, a minor league ball team that's just got a, a new ballpark that's fantastic. We've got the WNBA. So the sport landscape in Las Vegas is changing. You know, we used to be the entertainment capital of the world. We are the sport and entertainment capital of the world. Um, uh, on top of that, uh, top-notch staff at UFC, they, you know, they hired a dietitian by the name of Quint Wattenberg, fantastic combat sport dietitian. Just so happens his wife is uh, the director of sports performance at UNLV. So we've got this community of sports scientists right now that is, it's, it's probably not duplicated anywhere in the world. And so, so we have some great conversations. We do quarterly meetings where we can all talk with one another. We've got um, educators in the space. We've got people from the tactical world. Um, we've got uh, uh, you know, Nellis Air Force Base is in town here. We've got National Guard units in town. So it, it just goes on and on and on. So on campus, we're really pushing a sport innovation initiative, and it's around all aspects of sport. Um, and one of those pillars in that is uh, is the the first responder military human performance, which has been fantastic for me. Uh, Dr. Kara Radzak is uh, is an athletic trainer who does a lot of work with ROTC, so she's got a great tactical background, looking at some injury prevention stuff. So we we've got this. Uh, critical mass of people that are really asking some similar questions um, uh, and, and we can uh, we can get our students uh, opportunities to work with these different places which has been fantastic obviously covid puts a smackdown on some of those but uh, but i've got a, a former graduate student who's an employee at, at ufc right now who's, who's just a great coach uh, you know it was so weird i actually just talked to him this last week it's like an accident that i ended up at unlv and he ended up there we had similar interests um, and uh, I, unfortunately, he probably didn't get the best Brian as far as a mentor because I was a department chair and up to my eyeballs and the day-to-day -day crap that goes along with that. But, uh, but he's, he's thriving and it, just, it, it warms my heart to see that. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we had just, just had a conference in town last weekend, so we're, we're bringing in those conferences. Uh, we would have had the, both, both uh, NSCA conference, both TSAC and, uh, and the regular NSCA conference would have been here in 2020 if not for COVID. Mm -hmm. So uh, this, this place is just really, really doing well. Um, I was able to develop a course on first responder military human performance, which is so much fun to teach. Um, and it, it, I think I took a unique aspect to it. I really asked all these coach friends of mine, like, what, what, what do you want people to know? Okay, if somebody walks into your facility and they're, they're, they're a new, new to tactical coach, what do they need to know? They say, well, a lot of it's environmental physiology, right? They have to understand, they have to understand the professions and the environments. I'm like, okay, well, I can do that. So my course is not a strength and conditioning course because we have those. We have uh, several other strength and conditioning coaches for our undergraduates, and I and I highly recommend everybody take those. And if you want to get in the tactical world, we take my course. So we talk, like I said, about the professions themselves, a lot about load carriage, um, and then a lot about the environments uh, that people operate in. Uh, we do talk about nutrition uh, a good degree. And, and my disclaimer is I'm not a dietitian, but I'm married to one. Um, so, uh, and my wife's got experience working, doing some contract work with some, with some small unit stuff. So, uh, you know, that's, that's where I really try to concentrate in that area because a lot of it is, uh, like on the nutrition side, really behavioral. Um, it, 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 if it was just eat this, not that everybody would be performing greatly, right? It's just not that it's, 
you know, I am at this giant uh, Air Force base and all the food's on the other end of base and I'm not going over there to get to the defect to get food. I'm going to eat, oh, the burrito truck's here. Well, I'm going to eat that, right, because it's here. Or I don't eat all day long. I drink Monsters and then on the way home, I'm going to, you know, get pizza and wings, something like that. And I get, listen, I love pizza and wings. And by all means, eat the pizza and wings. And also fuel yourself for what you need to do for your job. So, so we talk about those types of things, just logistical issues. Um, you know, I've, I've got a real, real close friend who's in Clark County Fire, and you know, and I still, you know, I know what life at the firehouse is like. But, uh, but the benefit of that is that I can interview those guys. They can come and talk to my class. Um, we can do adult day at the firehouse, which is uh, makes me a little kid again. Like, like I go to the Air Force Base and there are airplanes in there. I'm like, I'm a little kid. I can watch. I could watch jets fly all day long. Uh, it's uh, it's just really really fun to do, and then like I said, I teach the I teach research methods and scientific writing. So I'm very very fortunate to have a teaching schedule that I just love. I'm I able to teach uh, upper level undergraduates um, and lots of graduate students, uh, and all around the sport performance type stuff. I can I can hang out with guys in town here and soak up their knowledge of of being coaches and dealing with the athlete on a daily basis. Um, you know, I've definitely become a UFC fan. Um, I always try to like pull a little bit out of it, of, like how I can think about small unit combatives, which is not a sport. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more serious than that. But uh, but there's just tremendous athletes, tremendous um, professionals in town here, and the, the ability to have doctoral students. Hopefully, um, we can we can get more funding and then have more and more of them and keep developing this initiative. You know, I think that in the big picture, we'd love for this initiative to become an institute. Um, that usually requires um, funding, uh, but we really are the sports and entertainment capital of the world, and um, I think this is a tremendous place for uh, you know master students and PhD students to to get plugged into that. I mean that's awesome, dude, and it definitely is. It's very much a hotbed right now for just sports performance and just everything that goes around that as well. As you said there, from UFC, women's NBA, and you know NHL team, NFL team in there as well. And all the stuff you guys are doing and feeding into that as well. I think that's awesome to hear, dude. You're saying you've got a lot of graduate students coming in as well. How many PhD students have you got under you at the moment? And what's what's the main breadth of like projects they're looking at that we can look forward to seeing some of their stuff on? So yeah, I saw the but the respiratory stuff is is, uh, is coming out soon. Um I got some uh, another student who he was a little he he hit COVID hit him the worst. Um, so we're actually doing some different types of meta-analyses, and we're taking a little bit of a different plan. He's really looking at um, uh, the ability of first responders to provide CPR, to provide emergency medicine, and the physiological cost of providing emergency care. Um, so that's a that's a, a, an interesting thing that we're working on. It's uh, it's it's a it's a slow walk. So I, I you know don't don't call me tomorrow asking me where that stuff is because I, I don't know where that's going to happen. Uh, but really, we're we're gonna work on some other aspects of load carriage. Um, again, with the close quarters, uh, close quarters battle, uh, I think we're gonna get at that really soon. Um, uh, we've got some other uh, slightly more general questions about uh, loading and unloading in different situations. Uh, these the 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 ability to unload with these uh, weight bearing treadmills are pretty unique. Uh, so we're we're dealing with some things with that. Um, uh, I've done some you know, off off projects um, looking at cold weather uh, weapons manipulation, um, and that's a kind of more of a, a, a hobby thing for me. So I hopefully we'll be able to round that out a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, I'm trying to keep it as narrow as possible and really deal with a lot of the low care stuff. But I'm a 
I've, I've got a lot of curiosity around a lot of different things. So when somebody asks me a question, I can, they can pull me down the rabbit hole pretty quickly. Um, you know, different training modalities, I think are important. I'm a, I'm a fan of the, of the, of the, of the Versa climber. So I'm, I've had some questions around the climber and how it could be used maybe as a testing tool. And I know that I'm not the only one that has those types of questions. So that's kind of some fun stuff that we're doing. Um, you know, when I, when I get a student that comes to me and, and wants to work with me, I, I, I try not to be, uh, like, I don't, I try not to hand them about like, this is your dissertation, right? I would try to, you know, really see what they're interested in because I want them to be passionate about it. But I also want to tell them, like, well, we can't, you know, we can't go down too many different roads, right? We got to, we got to be able to have some collaboration and, and do team science. I function better uh, when we're doing team science. So uh, I don't know. I, th I think, like I said, coming out of COVID, we'll see where, where those roads lead us. A lot of it's going to be on this close quarters battle. That's our, that's our number one topic right now. And, and then obviously load carriage is always going to be a part of that. Um, I've been able to, to um, ask some kind of neurocognitive questions not my area, but I know people that um, that are interested in that area that I can collaborate with. Um, because you know, we, we do know that load carriage um, can decrease vigilance, right? Your ability to make good decisions and, and pay attention to things is, is it's hard. What sucks when you're tired, you can't do those things, but they're very important, right? So um, even if, even the questions around vigilance after the blood draw, right? And, and your ability to, when you got that, uh, the, the interplay between your cognitive abilities and what's going on physiologically is obviously very, very tight. So if we can answer some uh, questions around that, I think we'll be, we'll be doing some good stuff. That'd be cool. I mean, I look forward to seeing some of those again uh, further down the road and eventually published out there. I think there'll be some really interesting uh, subjects around that. So we'll stay tuned for that. Uh, Brian, everyone I've chat to you on the show, I'm always keen just to know what they're engaging in for their own development as well. Um, obviously for a guy who's gone through you know, long academic process with your own education and the research you're putting out. Uh, I'm keen to see what you're involved in as well, dude. So on that, can you either give us a book, an app or a website you personally found useful for your own development or education? You know, when you, going into this idea of evidence-based practice, right, and, and, and producing good science, you know, uh, here's a trick I play on people. I say, look, when, when you come and get your, your doctorate at UNLV, what's your doctorate going to be in? And they'll say something like, oh, it's going to be in biomechanics and, or it's going to be in physiology or motor control. I'm like, nope, it's going to be in philosophy. And they kind of sit back like, what do you mean? It's like, well, it's a PhD, it's a doctor of philosophy. And then the question is, well, the philosophy of what? It's not general philosophy. No, it's the philosophy of science, right? Mm -hmm. And the philosophy of science and the philosophy of statistics are very, very closely related, right? Probabilities and how we, we make assumptions or make predictions based on those data, right? So, so a book would be... Uh, there's a book, uh, a series out of Harvard, a very short introduction to, and there's a, a very short introduction to the philosophy of science. It's a fantastic book. It really gets this idea of what we can ask, the limitations of it, the, you know, how you think of the 30,000 foot view of, of research design. Um, and it's huge. I mean, it, it's hugely impactful because our, our field is driven by technology. Um, and if you don't believe me, try to do anything without a personal computer. I know we take it for granted now, but there was a time where there weren't personal computers in exercise sciences, right? And, and sports performance. So what, what, ha what has happened is because the, the, the methods are so demanding that people have to spend so much time learning methods to answer questions that they can get sucked down into being a specialist at a method instead of the science. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and and it's, and it's just the way it is. It's just because the technology is so demanding. So, um, so there's a, the, 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 the science of sport is challenged by that of understanding the big design questions and analysis questions, and also understanding the methods by which we start to ask and answer questions. So that, that book's been fantastic. And uh, when, I, when I teach research methods uh, every year, we read a, a series of editorials by uh, uh, Farrick Fang and um, Arturo Casadevall, I believe. And I, they're probably open access by now because they're, they're editorials. These guys are microbiologists and uh, you, you think you couldn't learn anything with them, but they have a, seri a, 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 a series of articles. It's, um, you know, the, I think the, the first one is uh, descriptive science and then the second one is mechanistic science. And so the science articles by these guys are fantastic. And we go through them chronologically and they really you know, point out some of the strengths and weaknesses. Um, they, they talk about terminology, which like I said, is hugely important for me. Um, you know, the, the way that we disseminate that information is huge. Uh, you know, there's 500,000 words in the English language, right? So um, unfortunately, we've, we've taken the word significant and completely ruined it because significant used to mean important and now it means statistically significant and um, it can mean one or the other, but it can't mean both because statistically significant is not always important. Um, and, but that's a design question, right? If you, don't, if you don't design your study around the idea of finding a meaning, meaningful effect that is also significant, um, you get a bunch of people chasing significance. And then we have things like publication bias and all the other things that go along with that. So uh, those are two things that I would, uh, I would recommend. Personally, when I'm reading a lot, like you know, my, my nighttime reading, I read a lot of historical stuff. Um, uh, so it's, it's more of an entertainment thing for me, kind of maybe get my brain out of work mode. Um, so I, I read a lot of history stuff, uh, try to try to learn it. Uh, you know, I, I gave a few quotes today, but one of my favorites is that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So uh, hopefully learning a little bit from uh, from history. All great valid points there, Brian, and 100% agree with you, just the understanding around the science and just the approach to it. So I think those are some great, great resources, mate. And I'll make sure I stick them in our show notes for everyone, uh, just so they can uh, touch base onto them as well. For anyone who's listening here, Brian, you know, you've dropped some great knowledge on this uh, episode. You know, if they want to get in touch, either, you know, find out a bit more, chat to you about potentially coming out to your NLV to study or for research collaborations, what's the best way they can do that? But Oh, there's several ways. Uh, LinkedIn is always a good way to contact me. Um, I'm, you know, you can just send me an email, right? It's brian.schilling at unlv.edu. I'm not that hard to find. Um, I do uh, do have some social accounts. I've been I've been considering the 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 how we how we communicate science through social media. So uh, the science of hard work has been the handle I'm using. So I'm on Insta and on Twitter with that. Trying to keep Facebook separate so my you know my parents can see pictures of their grandchild and stuff like that uh, it's hard to do sometimes uh, sometimes things get melded together so trying to keep them separate trying to use the science of hard work handle but yeah they can always send me an email and find me on LinkedIn um, try to be active on LinkedIn and use that as a good professional resource sweet that's awesome Brian I'll make sure I stick them in our link uh, into the show notes as well just so anyone can get in touch as well uh, once again, Brian, you know, thank you for being so gracious with your time, mate. I know you're a busy dude, so it's always, always appreciated. So, I feel, I feel like I didn't, uh, I feel like uh, everything on this, uh, that I've said has already been said by other folks on this podcast. I'm just a, a real uh, great opportunity to be able to talk to you. I really appreciate it. No problem, Brian. Thank you very much, buddy, and take care. Take care.
Hi guys, really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Team Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. The continued support us can ask you to do me a simple favor. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.